You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. The title of my message this morning is Living in Victory. And it flows very much from the passage that John was talking from last week and also from the whole theme of this morning's service. So I'm encouraged that uh, we're on the right lines. The Holy Spirit is clearly moving us in that direction this morning. We're going to begin by reading Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So we're going to be looking at this passage and uh, I'm going to give you the three main points right at the beginning. Secrets of victory. If you want to live in victory, what do you need to do? You need to know three things. You need to know your enemy. You need to know the terrain on which you are fighting. You need to know the battlefield and you need to know that the ultimate victory is guaranteed. Hallelujah. So those are the three things we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to begin with know your enemy. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those two verses teach us quite a lot about the enemy. And incidentally, we only need to know about the enemy what the Bible reveals. That's important for us to understand that. We don't need to know more and we certainly don't need to know less. The Bible is the source of what we believe and it reveals to us everything we need to know in this spiritual fight that we are in. 
So just looking at these verses, and obviously there is more elsewhere in the Bible, but there's quite a lot just packed into these, this couple of verses. You will notice firstly that the enemy is spiritual. We are not struggling against flesh and blood. We really need to understand that. Many of the problems which we face appear to have a natural origin, and indeed some of them, I suppose, do. Let's not over-spiritualize everything. Uh, there are natural causes for some of the things that take place in our experience. However, we also need to realize that there are spiritual forces at work in this world and not all of them are good by any means so we are struggling against a spiritual enemy secondly I want you to notice that the enemy is evil Paul talks about the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms not everything is good and you don't need me to tell you that there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world and the bad stuff that's going on in the world is a result of the spiritual forces of evil who are the enemy of the human race. I want you to notice also that the enemy is numerous. There's a lot of him, if I may put it that way. Note the plurals in this verse. Rulers, authorities, powers, forces... Of evil. Numer a numerous enemy. The enemy is cunning. Notice that word schemes in verse 11. Against the devil's schemes. The Greek word there is methodeas. Method. And that leads me to the next point. He's organized. We are not fighting against someone who is... Uh, disorganized and uh, just uh, having a go but not really caring there is system there is organization there is method there is scheming on the part of the enemy and uh, when I say he's organized I'm thinking of that phrase there that talks about the authorities and the powers of this dark world Paul uses this phrase uh, sometimes in the old Bible it's principalities and powers that some of you will be familiar with. And he uses this phrase, I think it's in Titus 3 and verse 1, where he tells us to obey principalities and powers, to obey rulers and authorities and magistrates. And there you see uh, it's talking on a natural level. The phrase principalities and powers is... is a reference to the structured order of society in which we live in Titus 3. So the structured order in society is organized with principalities and powers, with rulers and authorities. What Paul is telling us here is that in the satanic realm there is a structured order in that society. It is not a haphazard foe. He is organized, he is cunning, he has method. And then to jump to verse 16, we notice also he's deadly. He talks about the flaming missiles of the enemy. Wow, 
flaming missiles. The old King James says fiery darts. Have you ever had a fiery dart thrown at you from the enemy? I think some of us have experienced those little things. I wonder if Paul had been writing in the 21st century, he would have talked about intercontinental ballistic missiles. Satan has some of those as well, I suggest. But the shield of faith is able to put to nothing all that the enemy can throw against us. So that's a little bit about knowing your enemy. Don't minimize the power and the intention, the evil intention of the wicked one. We are struggling against not flesh and blood, but against a deadly enemy. But let's leave that because it sounds a bit negative. And of course, we're talking about living in victory. The good news is there is victory over this enemy and it is ours in Jesus Christ. Now my second main point then is that you need not only to know the enemy but you need to know the battlefield or the terrain on which you are fighting. Now surely if you understand about any military logistics you will understand that it's very, very important if you are in a battle that you should actually know where the enemy is, know as much as you can about the enemy, sure, but you also need to know the terrain on which you are fighting. You need to know whether it's hilly or whether it's flat, uh, whether there are marshes and bogs that you might get tangled up in, or whether there are forests, whatever there might be. You need to know something about the enemy, uh, about the battlefield. So what is the battlefield on which we're fighting? Well, it's all there, still in verse 12 of Ephesians 6, and he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against all these different things in the heavenly realms. Again, the old King James says heavenly places. The Greek actually doesn't have the word for realm or place there at all uh, and so it's a bit difficult to translate it in English you you have to put a word in to make some sense so you put in the word realm or you put in the word place but literally it's the heavenlies we're wrestling against this in the the heavenlies whatever that means now Paul only uses this expression the heavenlies in Ephesians quite interesting doesn't use it in any other epistle but it's there in Ephesians and it occurs on several different occasions we're going to take a little look at all the places where Paul uses this expression the heavenlies which is what I will define as the realm in which the forces of darkness are against uh, are engaged against the forces of of light simple as that it's the battlefield in which we are engaged as Christians so the first thing I want to point out to you about this is that when Paul uses the expression the heavenlies or heavenly realms he's not talking about heaven okay he's not talking about heaven why do I say that how do I know that well still in verse 12 he says 
we're wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I have some good news for you this morning. There are no spiritual forces of evil in heaven. There's no evil in heaven at all. Heaven wouldn't be heaven if there were evil there. It was when Satan, Lucifer as he was, the light-bearing angel, rebelled against God and chose to set his face against him that he had to be thrown out of heaven. You see, God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. God is holy. Only that which is pure can enter heaven. That's why we as human beings need to know the forgiveness which comes through what Jesus did on the cross at Calvary. If we're going to enter heaven, there is no possibility of entering heaven unless your sin is taken away. And your sin is taken away only by the shedding of the blood of Jesus by what Jesus did on the cross. He bore your sin. He took the punishment for your sin in his body on the cross so that you might be forgiven and go to heaven if only you will believe it and if only you will receive it. And if you have received it this morning, the good news is that you are on the way to heaven. Hallelujah. There won't be any sin there. You will stand before him sinless, spotless, clean, holy. Heaven is a wonderful place. The heavenly places are not heaven because there are spiritual forces at work, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Not in heaven, but in that battlefield, that spiritual dimension in which we are involved with the enemy. So, what else can we learn from Ephesians about these heavenlies, this battlefield? Back to Ephesians 1 and verse 3. This tells us that we've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Look at it. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The key is being in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Paul tells us again in Ephesians 1, I think it's about verse 13, he says that you also were included in Christ when you heard and received the gospel message. When a person hears and receives and believes the message of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, when a person does that, they are included in Christ. Christ comes into us and we, in a mystical way, come into Christ. And that sounds, well, how can it be both? And the illustration I've often given is, well, which hand is in which as I clasp my hands together? Is my left hand in my right hand or is my right hand in my left hand? Well, they are both in each other. You are in Christ and Christ is in you when you receive Jesus as your saviour. And be, 
because you are in Christ, I want you to notice that Paul does not say he will bless us with some spiritual blessings. It's not that he's going to. He has already done it by putting you into Christ. In Christ, you are already blessed with some? No, every spiritual blessing, everything you need. It's Peter who tells us elsewhere that God has given us all that we need to live godly lives. All that we need. It's all available. It's all there in Christ. We've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ on this battlefield. In other words, to continue the military metaphor, you've got all the weaponry at your disposal, which fits in with the armor of God passage that we've just read from Ephesians 6. All the weaponry we need is at our disposal. We do not have to live in defeat. We can live in victory. Next thing I want you to know, because this just gets better as it goes along. Still in Ephesians chapter 1, we discover where Christ is on the battlefield. Now, Jesus Christ is described elsewhere as the captain of our salvation. He's the captain. We're just foot soldiers, as it were. But he is the captain. And where is our captain in the heavenly realms? Look at Ephesians 1, verses 21, 20 through to uh, 23. Last part of Ephesians 20. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What a fantastic passage. I mean, Paul really spells this out here. Where is Jesus in the heavenly realms? He is at God's right hand. You can't get any higher than that. He's at God's right hand. And just to make it clear, he says, far above far above all rule, authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in, also in the one it is to come. And now, God placed all things under his feet. Under his feet. You see it? He's at God's right hand. He's far above all. All things are under his feet. Not will be, they are under his feet and he's appointed him to be head over everything to the church oh how wonderful our captain is on the throne our captain is at God's right hand our captain is far above the enemy yes hey but could it be better than that yes it can go to chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 
because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You see, again, the secret is because we are in Christ. Because we are in Christ, we are seated with him in the heavenly realms. Now, this is, this is extraordinary. Christ is far above the enemy. He is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. That's where he is. Where are we? We are in Christ. So where are we? We're seated with Christ. So where are we? Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. It almost sounds blasphemous. I wouldn't dare to say it if it weren't here in the word of God. That's what it says. We are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not in our own strength, not in our own righteousness, not in our own power, not in our own goodness. No. Wow, we would be under the feet of the enemy. But oh boy, in Christ. Because of where he is. If he's far above it, we are far above it. We do not have to live in defeat. And finally, on this heavenly realms thing go to chapter 3 and verse 10 his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms there are those rulers and authorities the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms on the battlefield so there's some purpose in this verse. God's intent was that now. So God's got a purpose. And I want to say to you this morning, if you're going through the mill, if you're in the midst of an intense battle, if it seems as though everything is going wrong and you are very, very conscious that you are in this desperate fight, I just want to remind you that God has a purpose in it all. Now, <laughs> we, we, we don't understand the purpose. I read something in one of my daily readings recently and it was just a little phrase and I, I, I liked it and I've memorized it. When you cannot trace his hand trust his heart when you cannot trace his hand trust his heart and there are times when we go through experiences where we cannot understand what he is doing we cannot trace his hand we just don't understand it why should God let this happen to me cannot trace his hand but I will trust his heart because I know that he loves me 
and that nothing in all creation can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. End of Romans 8. Nothing. So I will trust his heart despite all that's going on. Yes, because God has got a purpose in it all. And the purpose as expressed in this verse is that he should demonstrate his wisdom to these rulers and authorities. And here the rulers and authorities will include the angelic realm and the demonic realm. He is demonstrating to the entire spiritual universe his wisdom through his church. God demonstrates his wisdom through me to the principalities and powers, through you. I think, well, how? How could he do that? Where's the wisdom of God in David Petz? I'll tell you, not in any academic achievement, not in any level of intelligence. I'll tell you the wisdom of God in me. He took a hell-bound sinner and turned him around and put him on the road to heaven. That's the wisdom of God in me. That's the wisdom of God in you. Oh, and he's demonstrating it through his church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. So we come to our third and final point. We know the enemy. We know the battlefield. And thank God we know that victory is guaranteed. You see, our assurance of ultimate victory is rooted in Jesus' relation to the enemy, the rulers and authorities. That's what we have to understand. That's why we are guaranteed absolute authority, absolute certainty of victory. And in a way, I've already dealt with this. But just to remind you, firstly, Jesus is already far above them. He's already far above the enemy. We're talking about his relationship to the enemy. Where is our captain in relation to the enemy? He is already far above them, Ephesians 1.21. He is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Let me just underline the present age. Paul says not only in the present age, but also in the one that is to come. Fine, but I just want to emphasize the present age. Because sometimes we feel, well, Jesus will be in the, fi- in, in, the, in the age to come. He will be in ultimate authority. I want to tell you, already he has the name which is above every name. In the present age. He's already at God's right hand. He's already far above them. Ah. 
And then if we go to 1 Peter 3 and verses 21 to 22, we find Peter teaching something the same as Paul. Not surprising, really. Both inspired by the same Holy Spirit. Peter says, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. Note that he has done it. He is there. Yes. With angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Praise the Lord. He's already far above them. They are already in submission to him. And finally, he is already head over them. Colossians 2.10. You have been given fullness in Christ, who is, is, not will be, is the head over every power and authority. Those few verses show us then that he's already far above them. They're already in submission to him. He is already head over them. <sighs> Jesus is seated at God's right hand with the enemy under his feet. But let's finish by asking why. How is it? that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is at God's right hand with everything underneath his feet. Well, of course, we know he wasn't just a man. He was, of course, God incarnate. But uh, let's give a couple of biblical reasons why Jesus is at God's right hand with the enemy under his feet. Well, firstly... The Bible tells us because he created them. <laughs> I mean, this is a, a verse in itself you could preach a thousand sermons on. For by him, Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. There they are again. All things were created by him and for him. And Paul goes on, and in him all things consist. He's the head of the church. Very similar passage to the one in Ephesians 1. He has the sovereign right of the potter over the clay to do what he likes with his clay. He's the creator. He can do what he will. He's the head of them. He's the boss. He's in charge. He's God. Don't forget it. But you see, he isn't just above them as God, the creator. But he's above them as the man, Christ Jesus, who gave his life a ransom for all. He's our representative head of the human race there in heaven representing us before the Father. And I love this verse in Colossians 2.15 which tells us that they are subject to him because he conquered them at Calvary. 
It says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Triumphing over them in the cross. The cross is the center of everything. The cross is the place where our sins are forgiven. But more than that, the cross is the place of victory. When Jesus cried, it is finished, it was not a cry of defeat. It was a cry of victory. It really means it's done. It's accomplished. I've done it. Because it was at Calvary that he conquered the principalities and powers. And some of you possibly more than once have heard me explain this little word triumph that Paul uses here. And sometimes when I've expounded on the triumph, I've taken 10 or 15 minutes to do it. So I thought, well, I won't do that this morning. The message will be long enough. So I'm actually just going to read to you a short section from one of my books because it will be quicker that way. On, two, on Colossians 2.15. In using the word triumph, Paul was deliberately calling to the mind of his readers the picture of a great military victory. In the Roman world, a triumph was rather like a modern military decoration which someone is awarded either for bravery or for great achievements on the battlefield. To help understand this further, let us imagine that Caesar, the Roman emperor, has learned that in a certain distant corner of the empire, one of the tribes has rebelled against his authority. So he calls his most senior general and gives him instructions to take a legion of soldiers in order to suppress the rebellion. Accordingly, the general goes and conquers the rebellious tribe, taking many prisoners and begins to lead them back to Rome. Before reaching Rome, however, he sends a herald in advance to inform the emperor of his victory. On hearing the news, the emperor decides to award the general what was called a triumph. He proclaims a public holiday so that all the citizens of Rome can welcome the general on his return. Then, on the appointed day, the people lie in the streets of the city awaiting the return of the general. As he arrives in his chariot at the head of his legion, the people cheer and applaud. They almost worship the general because of his great victory. But behind the general and his legion come the captives. They have been stripped of their weapons. Their hands are tied. Their feet are shackled. They are totally subjugated and are forced to walk with head bowed low beneath a symbolic yoke created for this purpose. They have truly become a public spectacle. This is the picture that Paul calls to mind when he tells us that by the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and triumphed over them, making a public spectacle of them. 
as citizens of heaven, we have nothing to fear from such an enemy. Rather, we stand back in awe and marvel at the mighty victory our general has won for us. And we worship him. Yes. So, you see, ultimate victory is guaranteed. But what about now? Well, let's go back to where we started, and I'm nearly finished. Ephesians 10, uh, Ephesians 6, <laughs> there aren't 10 chapters in Ephesians. Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 14. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Those two words, be strong, it's important we understand exactly what me, Paul means by that. In Greek, there are two ways of saying be strong. One would mean get some new strength from God, you need it. The other would be be being strong in the strength that you already have. And it's that second one that Paul uses here for those of grammatical ability, for want of a better expression, forgive me. It's a present imperative in the Greek. Be being strong. Not get some new strength from the Lord, but you see, be strong in the Lord. It's because you are in Christ, as we've already seen. In Christ you are strong, so be strong. Just be strong because you are strong, because you are in Christ. That's what this whole message has been building up to. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. You are in the Lord. You are in His mighty power. That's why you can have the victory. And so as we read on through 11, 12, 13, 14, I just want to pick up one word that is repeated four times, I think, or mentioned four times. I suppose technically that means it's repeated three times. Yeah, right? Once and then three Oh, never mind. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. Verse 11. Verse 13. You may be able to stand your ground. And having done everything, to stand. Verse 14. Stand firm then. Stand, 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 stand. Sometimes you feel you can't move forward very much. Well, just take a stand. Take your stand. What does it mean? If in your heart you have received this message, there's something within you stirred and said, yes, I believe that. I believe that Jesus is victorious. I believe that he is far above all. I believe that I am in Christ. I believe that I am seated with him in the heavenly places. I believe that I can live in victory. Okay, then stand on that truth. 
Because the enemy we were talking about earlier, oh, I'm glad it's a long time since we mentioned him. But we did mention his schemes, his cunning. He's a liar. And he will sow lies in your mind whenever he can and tell you that you are a defeated foe. But you are not a defeated foe. You are victorious because you stand in Christ. Receive the truth, stand in the truth, declare the truth, and remind yourself every day of the truth that Jesus is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, that God has put all things under his feet and given him to be head over all things to the church, to the members of his church, to you and to me. He is the head over all things. He reigns over every circumstance in your life. He's in control of every aspect of your being. Stand in that truth. Father, I commit this word to you. I ask you to seal it by your Holy Spirit in the hearts of your people. And I pray that as they remember the truth of your word, they will stand against the wiles of the devil and live in victory, the victory that you have already won and which ultimately is guaranteed for us all. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit brixham.church.